0: The sermon today is going to be on part of the Holy Longing series, and today our focus is on the shalom that we've been longing for, and we're going to spend some time exploring what that looks like, the shape of it, and what some of the challenges we commonly experience as part of that. Let me bring it up real quick in my notes here. Ah, all right. So I'm going to let you in on an Advent secret that some of you, if you've already been doing the devotional, might already know about that we, all of us, have been sent from the future. We know what the future looks like, and we're invited to engage things here and now in a way that reflects the future that we come from. The future belongs to and is established by Jesus, and the kingdom is even here and now. And we can invite others to be a part of that future too, finding in Jesus the hope and certainty that all things are being and will be made right People living in the time of Isaiah were worse off than we are. They didn't have the same perspective and some of the advantages that we see right now. Their not so distant past, included the glorious kingdoms of David and Solomon. And now things were a mess. Didn't seem like things were gonna pull back together, but continue to get worse. But let's also talk about prophets. Where does Isaiah fit into this? Prophets are usually known for calling out the problems in a culture. And Isaiah did plenty of that throughout the book. But they also sparked the imagination of a culture for what it could and would be. And today we're going to focus on Isaiah 11, where um, Isaiah paints a picture of what could be. So this is the passage that we're focusing on, and I'll go ahead and read it. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot... Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. Yes, the lion or the leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear, the cub and the calf will lie down together, the lion will eat hay like a cow, the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra, yes, a little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as far as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord." So this is a poem, a prophetic poem. And thinking about what that means, this is the Holy Spirit working in Isaiah, drawing on Isaiah's experiences, what people's common visualizations were of antagonism within the natural world, fears that parents have for their children. And then he paints a picture here of a future that feels very different from the present that he's in. A future in which there's a leader who leads in these ways, and not those. Those ways being the ones he already spent multiple chapters or multiple writings describing the shortcomings of. Who possesses all of the riches of the wisdom of God. Where appearances and rumor do not dictate what is true. Are we in a time where appearances and rumor dictate what's true sometimes? Where the poor and the wicked are dealt with as they ought to be. In that time, he says, all the conflicts and oppositions we are normally beset with will be lifted, even to the degree that it might seem unnatural. So Isaiah's stretching, and for him and his environment, he's like, you know what never happens? Leopards don't hang out with goats. Um, You don't let babies play near nests of snakes. These normal oppositions, imagine a place where something like that wouldn't be the case. And this child, this root of Jesse that we're imagining, is going to lead us into that situation. And then he says, and let me tell you more babies and cobras. He says, and there'll be no more hurting or destroying. And why? For as far as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. The reason for all this peace is because people know the character of God and what he's like and what he wants. So Isaiah's answering this question, how does life with God end up for God's people? If all this stuff is broken, is he powerless to fix it? Are the solutions God brings always gonna be piecemeal and temporary? The Holy Spirit through Isaiah says no. And this state of being in which everything is coming together under God's rule in the context of the Spirit's wisdom instead of breaking apart is shalom, God's peace. Let's talk about that. So you've heard before the shalom is a bigger than our usual concept of peace. It means interrelational wholeness. In translation, the Old Testament Hebrew uses the word shalom. In English, we've always translated that as peace. Once we move into the New Testament, which is written mostly in Greek, we're translating it again into peace. But probably the Hebrew shalom is going to be a better umbrella idea for us to work with. My favorite definition for that is one I learned a long time ago in a book by Cornelius Plantinga that I do recommend. And here's his definition. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. What are natural needs in which natural needs are satisfied? We think immediately of food and sleep and that sort of thing, but I think there's some other soul-level natural needs that aren't as easy to satisfy. Things like belonging, being understood, being delighted in, being useful, being loved. And I really like the way he says, "...and natural gifts fruitfully employed." I love that. I have some strange natural gifts and I've found fruitful employment for them. So it's (laughs) been fun. (laughs) There's an important distinction I'd like to point out and it's not just being in right relationship, but I see like planning implies that he talks about joy and delight. A state of affairs, these two things, the needs and the gifts being satisfied and employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. So I think as we go forward and talk about the way things ought to be, I'd like to think of a situation in which not only are things in right relationship, but they're also creating delight because that relationship is good and satisfying. Think of times in scripture when we see this, at least a little bit. When when God looked at creation after making it and said, this is good, or it is good. When at Jesus' baptism, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or in both the Psalms and the Song of Solomon, we see lots of joy and delight taking place in the context of relationship. Think about the Westminster Catechism, if you're familiar with it. One of the things that I remember from it Maybe the only thing, actually, I'll have to say, (laughs) is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we glorify God by listening to and living by the Holy Spirit, being grateful for the way we've been made God's children through Christ, and we enjoy him by paying attention and experiencing the joyful wonder at what we notice and by doing what we were made to do. Natural, grif- natural gifts fruitfully employed. What does that make you think of in your own life? I know some of you are musicians, so it's, that's an easy one, right? <laughs> yep. What's exciting is that we get to see from this middle place being after Isaiah and then after Jesus's incarnation, we get to see even more of what God's concept of Shalom looks like. We see the shape as revealed to Isaiah, but we also get a much fuller picture from Jesus. This is how we're coming from the future because we already live in a place where we know that Jesus's reign is absolute and that the present is being drawn into the future. So with the context of Isaiah, from Isaiah 11 that we've just looked at, Let's look at some pictures of passages of Scripture that show us how Jesus sharpened and focused our understanding of Shalom. Starting with Luke, Jesus' mic drop in Luke 4. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. As was his custom. So they, oh, here's Jesus again. It's good. And he stood to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it he found the place where it's written the spirit of the lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the lord's favor then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them Today's scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is pointing back to Isaiah and saying, Yep, that's me. Let's go a little bit forward then and look at see what Paul says in Romans 5 about Jesus himself being the shalom. Look, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and notice what he says here, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Confidently and joyfully. And then one more from, Isaiah, from uh, Ephesians 2.14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So looking at all these things and thinking about Isaiah, how would we characterize this shalom that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings us and models? And how does it dovetail into the reading from Isaiah? So here's the charge for us. We, as the people of God, with the Holy Spirit in the world, are continuing the work of Jesus, representing the future hope of shalom. And these are things we should almost always think about being done together, even more than individually. Let's go through a few. The first, I'm just kind of painting a picture of some of the things that come right out of that passage. First is being characterized by a knowledge of God's character. Fear of the Lord. Actually, there's one other that's missing here, and I'll just read it. It says, relying on the Holy Spirit for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So at the beginning of that Isaiah 11 passage, it talks about how the Spirit, of, the, the Spirit has given knowledge, the Spirit's given wisdom, the Spirit's ruling over and knows all of these things. And so knowing that the Holy Spirit has that for us, um, is one of the things that's going to characterize our sense of shalom. Another piece of it is being characterized is by having a fear of the Lord, which for us, in a lot of ways, just means being fully aware of who God is, what he's done, what his power is, and having a sense of his character, which is transformative. We can't ignore it. Um, in that passage that we read, there was a section that talked about he will not judge by appearances, so in that place of shalom, in an environment interrelationally, we would not be being prejudiced or judging by appearances, but we would be operating under the Holy Spirit to know and treat people as if they were all made in God's image. So next one, being fair and just. This kind of goes to when Paul talks about Now there are no slave nor free, no Gentile or Hebrew, no rich or poor. Isaiah regularly goes back to saying, hey, you bad rulers are not treating the poor and the rich properly. You're giving preference to the rich and not to the poor. So being fair and just often means um, not paying attention to those lines between rich or poor, but being equal. Uh, Next. Um, pursuing righteousness on behalf of those on the margins. That's part of what we saw in Jesus' life and part of what we're sensing all through these messages from Isaiah as far as who's taking care of the orphan and the widow and the stranger and the migrant. Um, being out from under, actually, have faith in God's ability to reconcile. What is at odds? That's, that's taken from two things. One is, Isaiah goes again and again about all of these unlike animals hanging out together. That's kind of reminding us, he's trying to condition us to this kind of perspective that even though we see these things out there that we don't think can come together in a way that glorifies God, God's able to do that. Um, In a way, Isaiah was talking about Eden when he was talking about all of those animals being together. And so what he's talking about is, um, there is a way that God has that, to reconcile all the things that were broken outside of Eden and return us to a place where um, those things that are at odds right now are no longer at odds. And not losing hope in doing that. Uh, the next one is being out from under the oppression of fear. One of the other quotes we could have done from Jesus is saying, you know, my peace I bring to you, do not fear. Um, all the times Jesus said, do not fear, Operating in a context of shalom means that our understanding of how we shape what ought to be isn't affected or influenced by the things we're afraid of. It's only affected by what we know God can control, what God can reconcile, and what God can do. The next thing that would characterize the shalom community or the shalom life would be our being willing, like Jesus, to be poured out to pursue people, and to be among. Just as Jesus is with us, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus also demonstrated his willingness both to pour himself out, to pursue people, and to also be among those, um, to really be with the people that, he, that need him. So good examples of that. I keep thinking of... Uh, The jar of alabaster perfume. Um, Just the idea that God's given each of us this resource, this beautiful thing that we could pour out at the right time, at the right place to honor him, or we could keep it and sell it or avoid breaking it. Hey, I've always got that jar of perfume I can get back to. But we're being called to pour out those equivalent things in our own lives, so. And then lastly, knowing who holds the end of the story. I think this plays a lot into something we're gonna talk about in a little bit, which is how to have hope, Um, especially when we're coming alongside other people who we have some overlap in our vision of Shalom, people in Olympia who may be working for certain things but don't have the same sense of hope that things can be accomplished. We always are working from a position where we know that things will be reconciled, that we know what the end is. It's almost like, hey, I'm from the future. It's going to be all right. Let's do this thing. Let's do this thing together. It's worth working on now, even if in 10 years it didn't look like it did something. It's still worth the practice. So, if we're supposed to follow Jesus into the kind of life that I just described, I think one of the things we should be paying the most attention to is how we respond to that call. And that's actually kind of the crux of what I wanna talk about here. Because it's easy to have a problem response or a response that doesn't, doesn't basically go where we're being invited to go. We can't be people from the future if we're getting hung up on some other things. And the first one is being cynical and apathetic and not having hope. Maybe you've given up hoping and are just enduring. Maybe like Abraham's wife, Sarah, you just laugh when what seems like an improbable promise is made. The good thing is that your lack of hope isn't gonna keep God's kingdom from being established. And like he did for Sarah, God is still gonna keep his promises to us. If that's the way you're feeling, Join us in being from the future, in waiting with confidence for good things. And practicing hope together is really important for making us all stronger. I think all of us sometimes find ourselves in that position where we don't really have hope in this moment. Sometimes it depends on what we had for breakfast or who, who's ill or who we lost. Um, but those are seasons and, They change, hopefully. The next one I want to add to our list of broken responses is being too anxious to be engaged. Not anxious to be engaged, but I'm too anxious. I can't engage that. I've got too many fears about what's going on. This is a place a lot of us live, not having peace. And by habit, routine, and addiction, we create lives that are free of peace. Maybe it feels peaceful to us sometimes. But often it's really just oblivion. So I've spent quite a few years of my life trying to find a a bucket of sand at the right temperature. It's kind of like an isolation chamber I can be in where it doesn't really seem like that's what's happening. um, And as a way of coping. But that's actually not where we can live if we want to engage in the works God's given for us. Maybe we give the loud world direct access to our minds in inappropriate ways. Our desires are often influenced by images, peoples, and things. We pick bad role models. We envy the wrong lives. All of these are kind of symptoms of our social media world. The way away away from that place requires discipline that we muster better in some seasons than others, but being intentional together, developing new habits, routines, and ways of thinking as a community. I hope we keep talking in the future about how to be that kind of community together, whose habits are a defense against the anxiousness of our age. Okay, next one. Another way we can go wrong is being caught up, having hope, but being caught up in a different vision of the way things ought to be that doesn't include the Prince of Peace who can make it happen. So this idea of flourishing wholeness and delight is the proper concept of Shalom, but it's not the only one. Remember the verse, like the one at the end of the book of Judges, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just like that, we're also prone like the Hebrews were, to take the values of those we live among and shift our understanding of where joy and flourishing are found. Our concept of the way things ought to be is shaped by our culture. Some communities have learned, have a learned sense of shalom that's tied to tradition and the way things have been, whereas others have a sense of shalom that's future looking. They know the current brokenness and they wanna see it change. So for example, if I'm raised in a rural area, I might grow up in a culture that tells me things are getting worse in America, and that if we can return to the values our grandparents had, self-sufficiency, industriousness, respect, we'll be closer to the way things ought to be. That would be shalom. Or I could grow up in the Bay Area or Redmond and grow up with a sense that we're getting better at better at fixing life and culture through knowledge and technology. And I might look forward to a future that looks a lot more like Shalom to me because it doesn't look like the past. Both of these are incomplete, without a reliance on the Holy Spirit for wisdom, knowledge and understanding that comes from God. And that spirit operates in honesty and truth without fear. Because fear is a powerful force when it comes to shaping a culture. How many of you notice that our culture is shaped by fear? (laughs) As an aside, uh, I think a lot about language sometimes and how we tell God's story to others. Sometimes we get inoculated against understanding certain theological terms, or we hear certain words in a unique way because of associations we have. What do you think the average unchurched person in Olympia thinks about the word sin? Is that a word they're eager to talk about or give any sort of believability to? No. But I would say that the concept of shalom is really helpful in presenting gospel ideas because sin is really just anything that violates shalom. And Olympia is a place where people have nurtured a sensitivity to how shalom is being violated. Even if it doesn't map 100% to what our understanding of it is, they know that they're often part of the problem. We know that we're often part of the problem. (laughs) Meaningful solutions are the hard part. And there's a natural understanding, especially in our city, that things are broken, that we're broken, our systems are broken, and that even shalom in our own lives are broken. We know it's sin. We also can call it broken shalom, which is a kind of inviting place to have that dialogue with people in. But we have a hope for it being restored, and God's given us the work of participating in some of that restoration. That's kingdom life. People from the future bringing the future life to the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, and there's another broken response here. Being caught up in the religious spirit and playing a part beyond our actual God reliance, (laughs) which ends up resulting in not having any of this joy. You know, it feels like we're doing the right stuff, but it's making me wanna crawl under a rock after a long time. So I have plenty of firsthand experience with this one. I feel like I caught the vision of Shalom 25 years ago with a lot of excitement, and then proceeded to try to execute it without any particularly deep reliance on God. Without seeking real wisdom, knowledge, and understanding from the Holy Spirit, it was fun for a while, and then it wasn't. It led to some dark times in which God showed me what my heart valued, and I was surprised to find at the time that it wasn't him It was getting all this stuff done and being known for liking Shalom, which was missing the point. It's kind of like getting an exciting new job and running off to do it without bothering to talk to your new boss. And then feeling disillusioned when you get things wrong. In this vocation, time with the boss is the job. And if you're spending time with the boss, you'll make your way to the things he wants you to do. Start with the boss. So pursuing Jesus first and waiting for instructions. Jesus' ministry was continued by the Holy Spirit. So if we're Christ's disciples, leaning into reliance on the practices that make us receptive to the Spirit are critical for shalom in our community. So we've been talking about problem responses to engaging in shalom. What's a good response look like? What's a good response look like? So let's do next slide here. So kind of, as you can see, I sort of took the broken things about the previous four and built something different. So moving forward in hope, pursuing God's shalom, not somebody else's, undistractedly, not being anxious or broken in the ways we do it, in the power of his spirit so we don't end up without the joy. And that's where we got to. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray and close us here. Father, this Advent we ask you to establish us as a people of your future. Give us hope, especially for those of us who live near despair. We ask that it truly be your shalom we pursue, that you would teach us to cultivate focus in a distracting and fear-stoking world. And that it be by your spirit that we do all this and that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven.